Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V-Radio. Good evening, and welcome to this edition of V-Radio. Tonight, my guest is once again Danny Shine, uh, formerly of the Love Police and still doing his work as the spiritual entertainer on YouTube. Um, to, before I get into that, uh, there's a couple of quick announcements I want to make. Um, first of all, uh, be sure once again to uh, go back and check out the shows that I have uploaded directly to Blog Talk Radio. Uh, they were recorded in the field in my uh, coverage of Occupy Detroit, Occupy Flint, Occupy Lansing, etc. Um, you can find them uh, by going to the uh, archive section either here on Blog Talk or whatever, but I just uploaded some from Detroit today, for example. They were really great. Um, and also, the V Radio YouTube channel is now really active. I just uploaded a bunch of great stuff there. Um, the V Radio YouTube, you can find at my website. Uh, if this is the first time you've ever listened to V Radio, please check out my website, V Radio or V Radio dot org. Uh, there you can click archives and find lots more shows like this one, um, including another one with Danny Shine uh, and a few with Charlie Beach from the Love Police. Um, not to mention documentary filmmakers, other activists, scientists, uh, politicians, and lots of basically interesting stuff to be found at v-radio.org. You can also click my must-see TV tab to find a list of free documentaries to watch on the Internet that I think are important to any activist or socially conscious person. So all of that um, station identification out of the way. Welcome, Danny, to the show. Hi. Good evening. So, um, Danny, we talked a little bit about this, um, and we kind of keep track of each other every now and then, um, you know, on Skype chat and such. Uh, and um, you've been out uh, at the different Occupy movements in the area where you where you live um, and had some experiences there. Would you like to share them with the listeners? Um, yeah, uh, it's... Uh, um, huh. It's an interest. Well, there are many interesting aspects and puzzling aspects and questions I have about it. Um, I uh, I've been to the Occupy London sites a few times, and um, I, I guess one of the things that I've discovered is that if you want to know what is not going on, um, then read the press. Um, and you know, it's quite an education because. Um, so, for example what the BBC often says about uh, Occupy London is it's anti-capitalist, um, which is clever. Uh, it's a clever way of, of labeling it because it just, that's another way of dividing the people. Oh, you know, uh, the people who are anti-capitalist and pro-capitalist. And I, I, I don't think that that's what it's about at all. Um, it's about a lot of things, um, different things, to different people, but I think probably what that, that what's in common is that I think the people that go there feel that there's something very, very deeply wrong and corrupt with the control system in which we find ourselves. Um, and uh, and that, that is not really being talked about in the press, of course, because the press are part, mainstream media are part of the problem. That's absolutely correct, Danny. And I have to say that... Um Especially, uh, I've been spending a lot of time exposing some of the people in the Occupy movements that I've been speaking to, to the work that you and Charlie did, particularly in the old days with the Everything is Okay series. I mean, um, when you were doing that way back then, uh, did it ever occur to you that something on this scale might ever take place? No, I, 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 I didn't know anything would happen when we first did it. We had no idea that it would be popular or, 
or that anything like that like this would happen. And it's um it's interesting though because you know I know that work like yours, work like mine, you know, and a lot of others in in many ways is going to end up being one of the things that will be listed as a catalyst to this kind of change. And, you know, I think it's also, you know, it's kind of typical, as you would point out, that the media is not really reporting accurately on the topic. Um, and especially the concept of being anti-capitalist. But when you consider that, you know, the people who own the media are usually really uh, pro-capitalist, as it were, um, it's kind of like, too, once again, it's kind of to be expected. I guess, uh, why don't you um, share some highlights just on a... I mean, did you just kind of go there doing your typical megaphone stuff, or how did, how did it work out for you? Yeah, um, I, I did a little bit of mega, megaphone stuff. Um, I also spent some time just talking to people. Um, I, I, I'll give you one of the highlights, actually. Um, one of the highlights was I, I, uh, on, my, on my YouTube channel, I recorded a, a young poet called JJ who's living uh, at the site, uh, absolutely charming, peaceful, lovely, lovely guy. You see his energy and a great poet. And he he recited a poet a poem, and um, and then I, I I came again to the Occupy, and it was a bit colder this time. And I thought, why don't we why don't we do this instead? Why don't we go inside? We'll do it. I'll tell you what. I said we'll do it in a bank. So there was a bank right right nearby the uh, where the Occupy uh, London uh, LSX is. We went into this NatWest bank, stood at the uh, entrance of the bank, and started. he started reciting his poem quite loud, but not ridiculously loud. I was filming him, and after 30 seconds, the manager came and said, oh, excuse me, sir, you can't do that. And I was saying, it's okay, he's just going to recite a poem. And the poem was only about four minutes long, and he, and I put this, this is all up again on my channel, and, uh, he, you know, he, he was sort of getting a bit agitated, and, you know, and uh, eventually he called the police, you can imagine, you know, the, the telephone call, or, or rather, the, he got someone to go out and call the police because they were quite nearby. You know, quick! There's a guy saying a poem in our bank, and uh, eventually, they, you know, the police came and said, "Oh, you can't do that in here." And <laughs> and, and basically, I think they might have some sort of protocol that when you call the police, I don't know this for sure, but you know, when when a bank calls the police, they shut the bank down, which is exactly what they did. They shut the bank down for the rest of the afternoon. So uh, we thought, you know, so I, so I put up a YouTube film called, you know, entitled Poem Shuts Down Bank. And I, I think that could be really interesting, you know, get poets to go all over the place, get them to go to airports and stand there reciting their poetry and see what happens, get them to go to police stations, to courts, get them to stand outside courtrooms um, in the corridors and start reciting their poems. Um uh, and there's, I mean, there's, end, it, it is endless, and it is something that I, I feel like it's time for me to really get a little bit more organised to, to sort of encourage other people to take um, clever, creative, fun actions. Um, because if, if, if you know, if instead of protesting, which I can't quite see the point of, if, if you know, if a tenth of the people who go on a, a big protest march, that you know, ten thousand of them. Uh, let's say there was a big protest march and they had 100,000 people, if 10,000 of them did things like that, you know, it would be so effective. I agree with you. And it's interesting, though, that you point that out, is that I've always thought that the work that you've done um, in particular 
was maybe a bit more effective than just going out and, and shouting slogans because it really encourages people to think. And the stuff that you do that's the most innocent and the least you know overly provocative seems to be the stuff that had the most effect. I mean, holding up a sign with everything is okay. You know, in this case, a poem. You know, these are things like, I mean, it's, it is like, I, you know, I found myself stifling a laugh when you were pointing out, yeah, you can imagine the police call, you know, somebody's reading a poem at a bank, you know, get over there right away, you know, yeah. um, and that's, it's, but the, the thing is, is that that scene in particular, and I, I wish I'd watched that video and I definitely will after this, um, you know, is, is kind of comical and then it makes you think about it. You know, it's like, okay, so all we did was we came here and we, we you know, we recited a poem really loud in front of a bank and then the police had to be called and, um, it was always interesting, especially in those old days, you know, before and pretty much the way you always deal with police for the most part is you kind of set them off balance because you're not, you know, you're so you're usually so friendly to them. And it, it kind of it reminds me of something John Lennon want, has said once, you know, it's like when it comes down to using violence, you're playing the, the systems game. Uh, and but. You know, then they basically will try to make you violent because they understand how to handle that. What they don't understand is nonviolence and humor. Um, and I think that that particular uh, quote from John Lennon describes what I've seen from your work uh, pretty much to a T. I mean, would you agree? Yeah, although I'm not always successful, and uh, but I think if you can get get it right, if you can really manage to be in a space where uh, where you can be humorous, then you know, I think that can be very powerful. Um, you know, I, I, there's a great piece, uh, there's a great uh, comedian, comedian's piece, one of my favorite pieces. Um, his name is Andrew Lawrence. You can find him on the web uh, in which he, he says, um, you know, the, he says, the police stopped me and, and said to me, uh, do you know why I stopped you? And, uh, you know, he say, you can imagine sort of saying to the police officer, do you have a sense of humour? Because I've got some funny answers to that, you know, and, and see what he says. And if he says, yeah, I do have a sense of humour, I said, well, you stopped me. Was it something to do with, you know, your childhood and the need to, you know, ruin people's day to compensate for issues in your childhood? Uh, <laughs> Sorry, go on. <laughs> anyway, check that out. Andrew Lawrence, um, mm -hmm. Uh, live on Channel Four, I think it is. If you if you look on YouTube for that, so yeah, I think humor humor is is definitely very very powerful because it disarms people. Um, instead of setting them up with ideas to to argue with, um, it, it disarms people. Um, I, I, the other day, I was um, I, I decided I, I, I decided to sort of try and take a back seat and have other people do do this and this particular action was quite amusing um i i was just uh, a, a witness to this um but someone i saw someone call up the police um it was it was non-emergency so he wasn't wasting emergency police time but he called up the police and he said um listen i've seen these uh, I've, I've read in the newspaper that you want us to report that the police have asked us to report muslim fundamentalists and I've seen a couple of guys, you know, they were wearing those things that they wear on their head and they had long beards. Um, and they're going, <laughs> they were going in and out of this property, you know, and the police officer saying, tell me more about it, right? You know. And, <laughs> and, Sorry, and, go ahead. And the police officer was saying, well, don't approach them. <laughs> don't approach them. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I, you know, I think that there's so much scope, there's so much fun that can be had to, um, to, uh, to make... To, to to highlight this 
this insanity, uh, the, you know, the insanity of w in which we live. Um, and if I, I've, I've said probably the last time I said this as well, I, that I spoke to you that, you know, if you're not enjoying yourself doing it, then there's something something wrong with that. Um, so if it's if your if your actions are full of anger, then um, then what you know what's that doing to you? That's a very good point. Especially you know I noticed that also is that you know that I love the Occupy movement. I mean I I feel homesick when I'm not at an Occupy. Um, if that makes any sense, um, you know I go home and I wish I was there, but. You know, family and stuff, of course, means that I can't just be gone all the time um, when you have kids. But uh, it's still, however, you know, when you are there, though, there is there is a lot of stress. You know, these people, um, especially the ones that are camping in the really bad neighborhoods, like we were in Detroit, like Toledo, um, New York, obviously, you know, it, it can be a very rough place. And yeah. It's basically a situation, though, that, you know, and of course, then, of course, breeds, you know, problems. And uh, another thing that I've noticed, it seems to be a universal problem. Like every Occupy seems to think this is unique to them, but there ends up being this, uh, and you know, kind of um, distance between the people who are actively camping and those who just kind of show up. Um, right. You know, and it's not like they don't appreciate the people show up, but there always ends up being the, you know, the people who aren't camping. Uh, feel like they're not really appreciated enough, and then the people who are camping feel like the people who aren't camping are kind of showing up and, and in some ways kind of telling them what to do in their own home, because that's what it feels like to them, and that seems to be a problem. I mean, I'm I'm reading that on message boards in Canada, United States, United Kingdom, you know, uh, and different places in Europe. Um, so, it you know, these things together, you know, there definitely needs to be more joy and enjoyment in what it is these people are doing. And I think that's part of the reason I wanted to bring, you know, you and Charlie's work to their attention was because, you know, you guys are clearly having a lot of fun, you know, when yeah. you're doing what you're doing. And it's fun to watch because you're having a lot of fun. And the funny thing is, you know, it, it not only does it disarm, as you pointed out, one of the reasons that satire and comical political activism is so successful is because it's entertaining and therefore people tune in. Um, who might not otherwise, you know, they might, you know, like, for example, uh, propaganda cartoons utilized by different, you know, entities at one time or another used to be extremely effective, you know, in communing a message, communicating a message, especially if they were brief. Um, and especially and obviously when they're funny, people will read the little cartoon who wouldn't say, you know, read an entire article about George Bush. They might read a cartoon making fun of George Bush, you know, um, and even though it's a joke. Uh, it can still be something that leads people to very real conclusions, uh, makes them think about things in a way that they hadn't thought about before. Like, you know, that was the thing that was so funny, especially about, you know, the work I keep referring to was that you guys were basically up there. You know, I keep mentioning the sign that says everything is OK. Um, and you you usually, especially back then, you kind of repeated in a somewhat sarcastic tone the kind of things that the mainstream media says. But you said it in a way that made it so obvious it was ridiculous. You know? Right. Um, my my favorite lovely uh, scene of all time is you on the micro, on the megaphone saying, you know, um, go back to your jobs. If you don't have a job, you know, you're a worthless human being. Right. Consume, consume, consume until there's nothing left to consume. You know, and then some guy like leans out the window to, I guess, yeah. to yell at you and you're like, get back inside and go back to work. 
Right. If you don't work more, you'll regret it when you've died if you haven't worked more. <laughs> you know? yeah. And that was and the funny thing is is that you were just you were saying exactly what the system says. But you right. said it in such a way that it was humorous that it made everybody, you know, to stop and think because people do seek entertainment, especially in our society that's just programmed like a bunch of lemmings to just turn on the television for anything you know, to, to distract themselves from the reality of the situation, whereas you essentially distract them perhaps from the, the melancholy that they felt before with the humor, but then at the same time you re-engage their brain to think about these issues. Um, and I mean, um, how has your work evolved since those days? Um, well, I suppose it's evolved in some senses, and in some senses it's perhaps gone, gone a bit backward, but um the 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 uh the evolution of the changes that i um is that i've d- i've done a lot of interviewing other people um another another thing that i love to do and and i i'm i'm happy for people to copy uh everything that i do and sh- or or amend it for themselves or whatever or borrow the ideas or take the ideas um but what what i really love doing is is stopping people at random and asking them piercing questions. Um, usually I will say something like, I'm involved in a research project. Um, sometimes I'll film it, sometimes I won't, because I love doing it anyway. But I might say I'm involved in a research project, um, which involves asking someone a quick question and compiling their answers into a short film. Um, you know, are you up for it? Not, not everybody agrees to the filming part, but, um, but often they do. And then I'll ask them, you know, all sorts of questions. And my favorite one is what's really going on. I've asked thousands of people that question. And, you know, and, and it's amazing to see the look in their eyes. Um, you see that, you know, within seconds, it's kind of they, their eye, their, their sort of facial expression turns from being suspicious to sort of smiling. And so you can see it's going on in their head. Oh, wow. Someone's asked me, you know, a really interesting question. Uh, and usually they come up with it with an interesting answer. Um, so a lot of what I've been doing recently is, is making short films of people responding to all sorts of uh, questions that we don't usually ask. Um, and that, that, that I really enjoy that. Um, I mean, from the, on the downside, I don't have anyone to film or edit what I do. So I've been doing the editing myself and I don't see myself as a particularly good editor and I don't really want to be doing editing. So I've got lots and lots of footage that hasn't been edited and some of it that I just sort of stick up there sort of doing my little bit of editing, but it's not the quality of what Charlie edited. Well, the thing is, um, since uh, I was kind of inspired by the idea of going out and videotaping people, so I got my own camera now and I've actually kind of found that, you know, the raw footage just kind of has its own appeal. You know, it makes it more uh, real um, in some ways, I think. I mean, we can anybody can doctor up and cut up a piece of, of life because that's what, you know, a video is. It's a piece of life, you know, record right. it um, and then make it mean something entirely different. That's what the media does. And, I you know, don't get me wrong. I, if you've got something that's just completely unconstructive going on, then, yeah, just just edit it. But. You know, overall, though, I've found that, you know, I thought about editing my stuff and I have friends that are willing to help me. I just I just didn't really see the point. Um, I'm usually pretty good at pausing it if things start to get, you know, unproductive and then just coming back to it later when, you know, something as good is going on. But overall, though, uh, 
you know, you're right, though, about coming and talking to people. You'd be surprised. I mean, well, you wouldn't be surprised, but the people in the audience might be surprised just how apprehensive people get about going on camera. Um, and the funny thing is, is that for me, um, I mean, because I'm talking to occupiers, I usually am just kind of interested in putting a face on that movement. So I just let them be themselves. And, right. you know, the first they think that they're you know, they talking to like, you know, somebody and they're going to have to be, you know, at their absolute best. And I'm like, no, I, I just want to have a conversation with you. And then through my, you know, my viewers are then going to also have that conversation with you. They're going to listen in on that conversation. They're going to get to know you. Right. Um, and I'd have to say, like, you know, I've also remember the, the conversations you had with that gentleman. Is he Irish? Um I think he is. Uh, the fellow you, you talk to from time to time, I've seen in different videos. Oh, Vin. Yeah. So, oh, no, no, do, do, you mean, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Oh, yeah. 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 Kelvin will do, yeah. Yeah, he's really uh, entertaining to listen to. I, I really, And that's kind of like an example of the kind of conversations that I was inspired to try to capture with my own camera here in the United States, right. um, you know, to try to get those living conversations and bring these people, you know, to... Yeah, just like I was saying earlier, you know, give a voice to these people. In many cases, especially occupiers, they don't have internet, you know, so it really feels like you're kind of going out into the jungle or something with a camera, right. <laughs> you know, to film these, you know, rare species that, you know, that you can't get anywhere else because they, they live outside of the internet. It's amazing, actually, um, you know, being somebody who's old enough to remember what it was like before the internet, I now kind of wonder, you know, um, it's... Just it's an amazing innovation that has allowed us to share these kinds of things on a scale that we never could before. Yeah, yes, indeed. I wanted to add to what you're saying, something I was speaking about only yesterday, which is, you know, the 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 volume, the sheer volume of fakeness that is cast at, you know, from every corner into our space. You know, the fakeness of the advertising industry, the fakeness of the news. It, it's it, it's totally insane. There's so little, you know, realness, and and I guess that's what we can do with our cameras. We can capture realness if we know how, you know, if we know what to ask people. And and I found that there is lots of fantastic questions that can open people up. You can you can capture realness, and that is very engaging for me. You know, seeing someone being real is really interesting and engaging. I agree, um, especially you know with the, the the way the times are changing. It's definitely a world that we live in now. You know, where you're going to meet more interesting people, and more specifically, you're meeting people in an interesting situation, and therefore you're going to be seeing. Uh, essentially, you're sharing with the world what you know a, a point in these people's lives. You know, that is making history. That is one of the things I would say that a lot of people feel about the Occupy movement has kind of drawn them in is that they, they feel like they're part of something that will be remembered in history for, you know, for years to come. We haven't really had something of this caliber in so long. Um, and I'm glad to see that that level of awareness coming back. I mean, not since the 60s. And that's another kind of invigorating thing about it is that a lot of the people from the 60s, you know, are showing up now. They're elderly, a lot of them, and, you know, they just they show up at our camps and they say, well, I'm too old to camp with you guys, but I really enjoy what you're doing and I really appreciate it. And maybe they'll donate food or whatever. But um, now there are some questions here from the audience. Um, 
They asked me to ask you, could you ask Danny what he thinks about Jeremy Clarkson's comments on the recent strikes, etc., in London and the negative effect it has, please? Um, <clears throat> huh. Okay. I'm going to do something which which I uh, do when I remember to do this. And perhaps whilst I do it, you can decide what you want to do and whether you want to speak or whether you want to... Uh, uh, just leave the space empty. When people ask me questions, uh, I find that the quality of my answers uh, is enhanced greatly if I just pause for 30 seconds to a minute. I think we've been really badly trained uh, by watching television. You know, how often have you ever seen anybody on any news program, for example, when asked a question, how often have, they, have you ever seen them say, let me think about that for 30 seconds. Yeah. Instead, they fire off some answer which comes from their past, often which is, uh, uh, you know, can, can often be very defensive. In this particular question, I don't feel defensive. But what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to just, uh, well, I don't actually think about it. In fact, I do the opposite, not think about it, for 30 seconds to a minute. And in that time, you're more than welcome to speak. I'm just going to take my headphones off a second. And you'll choose what to do, and I'll be back in 30 seconds to a minute. <laughs> Absolutely. I guess I'll fill the airwaves with a little bit of network. <laughs> Broadcasting systems, and he died at 11 o'clock this morning of a heart condition. And woe is us, we're in a lot of trouble. So, a rich little man with white hair died. What has that got to do with the price of rice, right? And why is that woe to us? Because okay. you people and 62 million other. Hello? Yep, have at it. <laughs> okay. Um, well, my question back to the person who asked the question is, who is Jeremy Clarkson? <laughs> are, are you actually familiar or not? It's okay to say you're not familiar. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm I'm probably more familiar than some people. I have heard the name before. I have seen the face before. But who is he really? Like, who is he? Well, and it, you know, and why, and why, why, why is the person asking the question, asking my opinion about his opinion? That's an interesting point. Well, with any luck, the fellow who asked the question will get back to us. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's just basically a question that was scrolling in the chat room. Um, right. But I, uh, must, I must warn your your listeners that I do suffer from a complaint, um, which is called IRS. Um, which stands for Irritating Response Syndrome. That, <laughs> Sorry, go yeah, ahead. You ask me, you know, someone asks me what seems like a very reasonable question, uh, and I'll give them an irritating answer. Um, <laughs> and I haven't taken my medication today, so I might be quite irritating. <laughs> well then. Um, yeah. 
So, in any case, uh, any other questions? Actually, uh, yeah, I'll look here now because there was a couple. Um, although, it, uh, let me see. All right, no, there was the Jeremy Clarkson's question, <laughs> and <laughs> oh, he said Jeremy. Oh, somebody else said Jeremy Clarkson from Top Gear. Oh, wait, we got to reply. I was just wondering what he thought the negative effects were of comments like that. I think he refers to something about Jeremy Clarkson's comments, but um, if you're um, it, the problem, I, I just don't give I don't give Jeremy Clarkson any of my energy. Why would I? Well, there you have it. That's a good answer. <laughs> so um, that being the case. Uh, now, I guess I was hoping um I mean you okay, so you've been to Occupy London. Were there any other occupies you visited so far? Uh no, I haven't actually. No, just London. How many times have you been? Uh, I've been about 10 times. Excellent. Um can you think of any other highlights? Um <clears throat> uh, well, I, I I yes, I can actually. Uh on two two other highlights. On the 11th of the 11th, 11, at 11.11, there was a beautiful large circle of people who were meditating, um, and then they went on a silent walk from St. Paul's Cathedral to Westminster, past the House of Parliament, and it was just completely silent, no banners, um, so no writing, nothing, just a silent walk, and I thought that was really beautiful. And it was quite interesting asking the police officers what they thought was going on. <laughs> and what did they say? <laughs> oh, the, the different things. They they said, well, uh, I suppose that their people are marching or walking or something. So they, they uh, I, I, I asked, asked one of them and said to the viewer, you know, what do you rate this out of 10? She said, 8 out of 10, she said. I said, what would make it 9 out of 10? Said, some, some animals maybe, you know, a couple of dogs. Uh, be nice. So that was cute. Um, and there was also a talk. I didn't, unfortunately, had time to stay for it by a, a Spanish, um, a renowned Spanish economist. I remember his first name was Manuel, but I've forgotten his surname. I'm not very knowledgeable about these things. And you know, he he had hundreds of people listening to him. He was a well-respected economist, and I and, and he came down and spoke. So um, that was pretty cool. Excellent, excellent. Um, have you met anybody there that you know maybe that you found very compelling, or you know someone that you know has kind of been added now to your circle of friends? Um, yeah, good question. I I, I I just find the people that I find I, I find that going down there it feels good to me. It feels like I'm with people who care about life and care about our world um and I, I i enjoy being around them um so i've met lots of wonderful people um who are prepared to some of them prepared to do much more much more than i because i don't camp there um and it, it, it's great right I, that's basically very similar to the way i feel about it too and it's uh why well, i'm glad also that it's going on on a global level. That's another aspect of this I think that's unique, that uh, the Internet in many ways is what you know I, I feel anyway is responsible for, is that 
you know, we are essentially like you're seeing things like marches and solidarity that are going on, you know, in completely different parts of the world with people who have never actually met, who are merely communicating, you know, via technology. Right. And it's it's amazing, actually. You know, uh, now, go ahead. No, I was going to say there there are questions I have uh, about it. Um, you know, questions about solutions and what can actually be done and questions about infiltration um, and, you know, <laughs> people spreading all sorts of rumors that George Soros is behind it and things like that. So these are, you know, these are questions that I have about it. I actually had a conversation with uh, somebody locally about that and because, like, one of my friends, most of my my friends, like, basically I have my activist friends and then I have all my other friends. <laughs> my activist friends, as far as locally, that's a, that's a new phenomenon. It wasn't until Occupy Detroit that that happened. And he's like, well, the whole thing is masterminded by this George Soros fellow. And I said... Uh, well, that's interesting because I'm involved with several of the committees and I don't recall that man's name ever being brought up a single time. Um, I've heard about it on the Internet, uh, but I've never in any way encountered you know, this person, nor have I heard that this person had anything to do with any decisions that we have made. Uh, it's actually because of the consensus decision-making model that they use. It's extremely difficult to really uh, sway them in one direction or the other to do anything that isn't uh, pretty much already on board with uh, the way that they operate anyway. Uh, now, I mean, uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I suppose whilst you're talking, I, I'm thinking that um, it's a good, um, I, I'm, uh, I'm, I, I'm following this guy called Jan Irvin at the moment who speaks about the trivium and the quadrivium. Have you come across that at all? The trivium, uh, stuff about logical fallacies? Yes. Yes, so, I love that stuff. Going to include it yeah. in the film, actually. Yeah. So, um, so you know, I, it, it reminds me when you're speaking about George Soros or, or whatever that uh, it's important for me to to install that antivirus software and keep asking, well, where did that, where did that information come from? You know, and can I rely on it? So, you know, who knows? Who knows what's behind anything? Um, I don't know. I don't know. Well, that's actually... And I, an, go ahead and, and finish. I'm sorry. You know, no, and I, do, and I don't know... You know, I don't know very much about anything, but I don't know how this movement... You know, how this movement is going to actually uh, achieve anything. I don't know how it will achieve or whether it will achieve anything. I think that the situation is is unique. It's completely unique. It's unique because of the Internet... And it's also unique in the scope of its, uh, of its, you know, of, of its challenge because we're talking about, uh, you know, a global system. Uh, I, I don't know, I don't know my history very well, but I don't, I don't think there was ever a revolution against the global system. There was always, always a revolution, you know, toward, pointed towards somebody or some group of people. But th this is something that's bigger than that. I agree, and that's I think one of the reasons why when people say that you know there are these there are certain facts of life about human beings that have never changed and will never change, I kind of chuckle because we're not really in the same paradigm anymore. We're not in that circumstance anymore. You know, 
one of the things that my history teacher told me about World War II is that the reason it was so easy for the Nazis um, to to basically stage the fascist takeover that they did, and then the reason they were so effective militarily with the Blitz was that communication was just not the same. You know, uh, people would be lucky if they had a radio. Uh, very few people had televisions, and you know, at that time. And it was just, it was pretty simple, really, you know, just kind of roll over there. You know, if you ever did anything like that now, you, you wouldn't be able to get away with it at all, you know, because it'd be all over everything. You know, you'd, you'd, right. you'd be on Facebook. And, you know, every that's the other thing. Everybody's got a camera, you know, because they're putting cameras and phones now, you know, so, and everybody's walking around with a phone. It's it's pretty much impossible to get away with doing anything that isn't going to end up being filmed at some point or another. Right. Uh, and that's uh, whether even you know whether it's proactive people who use cameras like you and me or Charlie, or it's uh, people who just happen to be casually walking by. There's so many right. people now with that ability, and and also to, to live stream from small devices. You know, you could be broadcasting live from a small little device the size of a cell phone. Um, yeah. In many cases, directly from a cell phone. The, the the impact of that is huge because even if they snatch your camera away, you know, you already broadcasted whatever it is that took place. So it's, and it's already stored somewhere else on the yeah. internet. Yeah. And if someone wants to have uh, one of the things I haven't actually put this into practice because it's quite difficult to remember when in the heat of the moment, but one of the things that I wanted to do is the next time the police officer comes up to me and I'm doing one of my things, I, I, I'm sort of planning to say, Say to him, if I've got a cameraman there or someone else filming, I'd say to the cameraman, "Okay, cut for a moment, then go to the police officer." Of course, he wouldn't cut; he'd know not to cut. He'd keep on filming, and I'd say to the police officer, "Listen, we're, we're making a, we're we're streaming live to the internet, and we we'll, we'll basically make films about the police, and our viewers will be voting on whether you're a real policeman or an actor." And roll. Yes, what did you want to say? <laughs> it, it, it is very interesting when people realize that they'll be held accountable for whatever it is they say or do later. I, yeah. I think that's one of the reasons why people get so uh, so nervous about it. Um, and it, it's interesting also that I mean it's uh, basically uh, the the circumstances are that. People are, I guess, accustomed just to being able to kind of shoot off at the mouth and say whatever. And once they're on camera, you know, it, it it's more real because at that point you're kind of concerned that, you know, what you're going to say is going to be held against you later. Um, and sometimes that's just a matter of insecurity. And sometimes it's a matter of just, you know, you're concerned that somebody will, in fact, just take the, you know, the videos and misuse them. Um, and especially since the government's trying to do that right now in so many different ways. Um, now, uh, this next question from the audience, uh, I, I'm going to go ahead and ask it because I tend to give my listeners what they ask, but, um, what is your opinion on Charlie Veach's change in his stance on the 9-11 issue? Right. Uh, you see, they're, they're doing it again, aren't they? <laughs> they're asking my opinion on someone else's opinion. Yeah. I guess right. they, yeah, they didn't learn the lesson. If, if you don't want to answer it, you don't have to. I, I, I'll, I'll tell you what. I'm happy to give you my opinion of the question. In fact, I already have. Um, but I, if, before that, I'd like to give you my opinion on my opinion. Go for it. And and that is that I'm not really convinced that opinions are very helpful at all. 
say, we say that on V Radio all the time. Um, okay. It's Jack Fresco, uh, actually, the, the fellow who's one of my many mentors in life, he, he said that you've probably heard that uh, everyone should have a right to their own opinion. He says, and that's that's very dangerous. That usually sets people off because they think that he means that they people shouldn't be free to think for themselves. And he's like, right. no, um, what I mean is don't settle for a half-assed opinion. You know, right. go study and actually find out what you're talking about before you right. go sharing it. So you know, elsewhere, um, that actually comes back to the uh, the thing you were saying earlier about how you find yourself, you know, kind of um, having an immune system for your for your brain, you know, with lo- knowledge of logical fallacies. Is yeah. you ask people, so where did you get that information? You know, right. um, you know, and it's in so many cases, especially. Uh, we are in a position, and this is one of the de- the detriments, actually, of speaking on the Internet, and I'm going to cover this in the troll film, but that is that people will make a statement. It is not in any way based in any research. It's just a hunch, but they'll make yeah. it as though it is a statement, and they'll make it as – they'll state it as if it is a fact, a confirmed mm-hmm. fact, and once you question them, you're like, well, okay, so what's your source on that? Uh, who told you that? Are you sure that's what that person said, or is that just what you think they mean, or is that what you think they're thinking? That's another one. You know, when you you ask someone to speculate on what someone else is thinking about, uh, you know, that's a situation where you know, in many cases, like you know, for example, in the Occupy movement, we just dealt with this recently. There was some people who um, had some opinions about what some other people were thinking when they did something. Um, and I, I asked them, I was like, okay, well, you know, you're kind of ruining these people's reputation with your opinion. Have you, can you know, I mean, have you researched this? Have you went and spoke to those people? Have you ever really tried to get to the bottom of it? And, and they kind of hadn't, you know, they, they didn't really have good answers for that. And I said, well, maybe you should consider that before you go around spreading that because it, it's like, it's like mental pollution, you know. Maybe uh, they should consider getting a job with mainstream media. <laughs> <laughs> right. Do, do you, perfect. And do you, do you think that's where the the habit comes from, maybe, or is it just? Uh... I, I'm sure. It, I'm sure it, you know, encourages it. Um, I, I I can't remember the statistics that I read, and who knows if they were accurate, because you know. But uh, you know, the statistics that I've heard recently about the uh, the amount of research that goes into some of these stories that they report on. You know, some of them, they've hardly researched them at all. And, you know, some of them they just make up. Right. That's very true. And it's... Uh, now, uh, the person is now rephrasing. Um, he says that he's, <laughs> he, he, he's learning now. He put in parentheses. Uh, do you still believe that 9-11 was an inside job? <laughs> Who said I believed it in the first place? <laughs> That's what it just popped into my head. I was like, I can't remember ever seeing you say one thing about it in the first place. But um, so that being the case, I think that's a good answer. Um, so I, I can say just to try to, to clear the issue because people asked me the same thing since I I have a Charlie Veach based Facebook group for people who are interested in that stuff about the Love Police, and I just post notifications up there because for a while Charlie removed himself from Facebook, so. I asked his permission to just be able to continue to allow people who were using Facebook to share his stuff. And he said, sure. And they asked me, well, what do you think about Charlie's change of his opinion on 9-11? I said, well, uh, I never in any way um, 
conditioned my admiration or value of Charlie Veach or Danny Shine's work on you know on their beliefs in anything. It was what they said and what they did that inspired me. You know, my connection with Charlie Veach, my friendship with him was never conditioned on him being a 9/11 truther. You know, I'm just kind of in a I guess I could call myself a 9/11 agnostic, you know. I just don't spend as much time talking about it as I do the the aftermath because whether it was an inside job or not is kind of irrelevant. It's the the known conspiracies to use it as a catalyst to do other things that I think is something that you know deserves more attention. Um, but absolutely, I can I really resonate with that very very much. So, um, and by the way, funny enough, right? By asking me what my opinion is on nine eleven. And what my opinion is on his opinion about 9/11, that's part. That's a logical fallacy. You mm-hmm. know, it's it's like I'm gonna. It's like saying, well, uh, yeah, because Danny Shine, right, who happened to get a megaphone, uh, you know, and stand in the street and do some comedy, yeah, because he believes that 9/11 was a conspiracy theory, therefore I will, or he doesn't, therefore I won't. It's just it's irrelevant. You know, do do the research yourself and come to your own conclusions or don't come to your own conclusions. What does it matter what I believe? Well, I mean, you wear a T-shirt that says, don't listen to anything I say. No, <laughs> don't believe. Oh, don't believe anything I say. So why, you know, you're already exactly. giving them advice not to listen to you. So why would they want your opinion? <laughs> well, I, I think you fielded that very well. Um, so. Now, as far as uh, the kind of work that you've been doing uh, later, um, I'm sorry, you know, currently, and then like, what is it that you're working on? By the way, I, 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 I just want to correct you on one thing. I don't. It, for me, it's not work. It's oh, okay. Pleasure. Okay, so pleasure. the pleasure, the pleasure that you will be working, the pleasure that you will be having on um, in, in spiritual entertainer stuff on YouTube. Um, do you have anything that you're planning to do, like any directions you're planning to go with your, you know, with your, see, now I have to not use the word work. This is, this is interesting. Um, where are you taking your pleasure? And I don't mean in the private variety. I mean, in the public variety. <laughs> there we go. Where am I taking my public pleasure? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, I don't have any specific plans. I, I think the one thing that I mentioned earlier on is. I, I would like to um, discipline myself to see what I can do to, to help and empower other people to get their creative juices flowing. Um, I noticed, for example, that when I put up um, films, uh, funny films, like for example, I put up a very, very short film. I, I'll ruin it for you. But I put up a very short film when I thought called The Queen. Have you seen that one? No, not yet. It's only 50 seconds long, so mm-hmm. I'll ruin it for you, but uh, it's, it's for a reason. So I called basically last Sunday at the Sunday Times, which is supposedly a respectable newspaper, but we all know what load of rubbish they are. Right. right. The Sunday Times had a, uh, had a front page first headline, which read something like, uh, The Queen Feels Pain um, and Takes a Pay Freeze Till 2015, Right. <laughs> so I phoned up Buckingham Palace and I said, uh, who deals with masks for the Queen? Why Why do you ask, she says. I said, well, um, I heard that the Queen is feeling pain. It said in the Sunday Times she's feeling the pain like the rest of us. And I'm a, ther- I'm a therapist and I'd like to offer my services to see if we can help her get through the pain. 
mm-hmm. uh, to which you know to which she said, "Well, uh, you'll have to write in. Shall I give you the address?" And I said, <laughs> oh, "All right then." And she said, "Well, you write into Buckingham Palace, London SW1V, 1TT." You know. And what I noticed about that, it was very you know less than a minute that film, but the mm-hmm. comments in the comments box were hilarious. Um, you know, if people were writing things like. Um, Oh, I'm glad they gave you the postcode because otherwise, how will the postman find Buckingham Palace? You know, or or, uh, <laughs> or I, you know, I do feel sorry for the elderly in the winter. Does she know she can get a special winter energy supplement? Um, <laughs> um, you know, or, or or things like you know, wouldn't it be an epic to have to have a few therapy sessions and perhaps film them, the Queen and Danny? You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but what what I noticed is that there's so much creativity and there's so much you know people are so funny there's so many people who are so funny and so creative that what I would like to do is be part of creating some sort of hub where um, which would take the pressure off me because I've got a lot of very uh, a lot of ideas some of which are quite close to the bone um, and and have other people do them and, and, and for example. Things that people can do from the from their you know from their own homes is make uh, intelligent prank calls, and there <laughs> there you know and there are infinite things you can do uh, you know to uh, and, and it's you know you you you'll get there's so much of this business where you phone somewhere and and you you say something funny uh, like for example one of the things I, I've done I did just put up as well is I called up Tesco which is the you know, one of the biggest supermarket chain in, in the UK. And I asked, uh, and I said, oh, I, I've got a moral issue. Can you put me through, you know? And they said, uh, okay, oh, that'll be customer services, you know. And you get through to customer services and there's five options. Funnily enough, there isn't an option, press six for moral issues. But um, I eventually get through and I said to the woman, I'm, I'm, I said, look, I'm going to ask you a difficult question, but don't take it personally. I do kind of mean it seriously. Why do you sell? Why does Tesco sell products that kill people? And she's kind of hesitated and said, "I, I wasn't aware that they do." And I said, "Well, yeah, they do. Uh, they sell cigarettes, and on them they say smoking kills, right?" Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and you know, it was interesting to hear her, her sort of start trying to answer the question, which was basically it's a bit of an unfair question to ask her. Um, and I, cover, I, I make sure, by the way, that her name, even her first name, I make sure now that I blank out because you know, this is not about her. But there are endless opportunities to make interesting prank calls. If there are things that bother you about society, for example, if you're bothered about um, the army or arms or anything to do with the military, start making some interesting calls and record them and put them up. Um, you know, I've had, I, I I didn't do this myself, but for example, other people have called up the tax man and said, um, "Where does the money go to?" You know, mm-hmm. I, hi, I'm calling. Uh, you know, I'm calling. I'm a taxpayer, and I just wanted to know where the money goes to. And you hear the guy on the end, sort of, you know, computer doesn't work. Help, malfunction. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. No, that's. That's actually interesting. Um, you kind of reminded me of two things. The first of which was uh, what happened when a young man uh, from Canada actually did a documentary, and he made it look like it was a student project, 
So therefore, he was able to get access to a lot of very high-end politicians in Canada, including several former prime ministers. And he began asking them about, you know, the, asking them the hard questions about how right. money is generated and all that. It's called Oh Canada. Um, oh, okay. And, oh, that sounds and, really good. I'm going to watch that. Yeah, it is really good. And the and the way that this, like, you know, very young man, I think he was a teenager actually at the time, wow. uh, gets these prime ministers squirming, you know, on camera is just amazing to watch. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's absolutely. I mean, when you watch how the press work and the insanity of how the money totally corrupts the press, you see that nobody is asking the you know these politicians difficult questions. Um, by the way, in the UK, what you can do, and I've done this before, is you can. It's difficult to film it. You'd have to film it sort of undercover, and they'd, they'd probably get really upset, and you might get in trouble. But you can, you can sort of, you can take the audio quite easily. And you can just walk into the Houses of Parliament in the UK and just stop people in the corridors. And you can find members of Parliament and you can ask them difficult questions and record those. I mean, so that's something that people can do if, they're in the, if they live in London. Excellent. You know, and that actually, the other thing that it reminded me of when you brought that up uh, was your, your phone calls to the census that you, that you videotaped. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everything is okay great. with the census. He, um, he was lovely, that guy. Actually, he was yeah. very nice. It's, but, well, that yeah, go ahead. No, he was very nice, but it's just it, it's funny because it's as if I don't know. It's as if it's as if sometimes I think that I'm I'm from another planet or something. You know, it's as if there are two 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 sort of species of people here. People that get it and people that don't, and of course that's another type of division, and it's not it's not as black and white as that. Um, right. Have you ever uh, watched a video called "The Way CR Manifesto"? Yes, I have. And I yes. think that that kind of actually uh, really personifies what you mean that there are some people who get it and some people who don't. What do you yeah. think about that? That's a great video. I love it. I should go back and regularly watch it because it's very it's great yeah i love it it's kind of motivational in a lot of ways and uh, you know so now there's another question um from the audience uh if danny had to choose between creating awareness on a community level addressing issues and looking at solutions and creating awareness through art and media affecting the audience on an emotional level what would you choose and why so intellectual or emotional? Uh, does it have to be either that or that? That's a good answer. Any, any other comments that you have about that? The, the only the only comment I have uh, that comes to mind when uh, with that type of question is um, is I don't think that this is going to be done by one person. And I think that uh, I think that that as I've said before, um, I think that it's important to enjoy, for me especially, to enjoy what I do, and do do what I'm good at. And I feel that I, you know, uh, that my interactions with the megaphone are. I seem to have this natural knack, which I just got from as a gift from the universe or from God or from whatever you want to call it. Um, 
and and I love doing it. So that's what I'm good at. Um, I'm not sure how good I would be um, at implementing solutions. I maybe I would. I don't know. Right. And well, you know, I definitely would say there there is a certain knack to it because it isn't something that everybody can do, at least not right away. Uh, and it's also a matter of, like you said, some people get it and some people don't. Uh, I think a lot of it, it, it has to do with childhood. Uh, it's, it's how you were raised, whether it was by your parents or perhaps some kind of early mentor. I mean, I remember uh, Jock had an unusual childhood. And when I told him about mine, he, he had this huge grin on his face. And he said, your mother was very good to you. She gave you the tools because my mother was very big on, you know, me thinking for myself and questioning you know, authority and just questioning everything, but not the other thing though is that she was very reasonable about it. She didn't say just don't question authority just because, you know, but be aware of what's going on and, you know, don't just go along with any anything that authority says just because either. And she always cited the example of the platoon of soldiers that was sent to ground zero to see what would happen to them after they detonated the first nuclear weapon. Uh and how maybe they should have had some questions. Um uh, and there are other people that I've met, and usually, because I've I've interviewed lots of people now from the Occupy movement, many of them are people who usually come from backgrounds wherein uh, their parents, you know, had some kind of influence on them. And then, then there are others, however, that their parents had nothing to do with it. Like, their parents don't like that they're doing it at all. Um, and it turns out that maybe a, a teacher or someone that they met growing up kind of had an influence on them. You know, uh, what would you say was the environment that created Danny Shine? Well, you see, my mine was a different one. It was quite a. Um, I, I suppose I lived in quite a dogmatic. Uh, I had quite a dogmatic upbringing, and for me, it was a rebellion against that that I still have to sometimes deal with and uh, and struggle with uh, because uh, you know, as you said before, your mother sounded very wise to say it's not just about fighting all authority. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I am on an exploration of that myself, exploring what, what is my relationship with authority. And I think at the moment it makes sense to me that there is, there is good authority and there is in bad authority. You know, and a good authority would be, for example, you know, an expert in, in Tai Chi teaching me how to, 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 to do Tai Chi. It would be silly for me to challenge his authority if I trusted him to be an expert in Tai Chi. That's good authority. Uh, bad authority, well, I don't need to tell you what that is. There's plenty of that around. For certain. I've actually said the same thing on previous shows about the topic of authority and rules because there were a lot of people within the Zeitgeist movement that wanted us to have no rules in the way that we conducted ourselves on our forums and stuff like that. And I said that, you know, it... it you don't understand. You know, we're trying to work towards a world where you know, those things are obsolete or unnecessary. Uh, but that doesn't mean that you know we should just all be free to do whatever we want to whomever we want. You know, it's in the other thing that it was difficult to get through to some activists is that they don't understand that when they're being cruel to someone, they're essentially behaving in an authoritarian way to them. You know that they're controlling them in many ways. They may not be physically controlling them, but the act of trying to shame someone else and to be into either being silent so that they, you know, so that there is no dissent against them, or you know, uh, into 
behaving differently, that that is just as a tyrannical act as any police officer with a baton or a taser. Um, it's not physically manifest, but the, the psychological effects of having somebody do that to you are very real. Um, and that's one of the things, that's one of the reasons I, I contacted you, because I think you get that. And um, I'm looking forward to sharing the video footage that you've shot so far for our film, uh, because it, I think it covers a lot of that. Hmm. And uh, when it comes to the logical fallacies, that's another major issue that I'm glad that you know, you're studying it, and I suggest everyone does, because it it really is just a matter of grasping that there are some people out there, you know, that will attempt to. I mean, it's it is it lying or is it misdirection? But whatever it is, though, every single one of the logical fallacies is not something that somebody should defend their right to commit. You know, if if you're, I mean, you can, you know, and nobody should be running around with a, a weapon or something forcing you not to behave that way. But if you, if your biggest argument as far as defending your freedom of speech is defending your right to use straw man fallacies, ad hominem fallacies, appeal to mockery fallacies, whatever it is you're trying to do to prevent people from thinking, because that's what a logical fallacy is. You're trying to prevent someone else from thinking, clearly. You're trying to find some way to prevent them from realizing that you're wrong, you know, right. And to defend that position in of itself is essentially saying, but I have a right to lie. I, I want to lie. And, and lying is my free expression. And if, and if you, you know, if you dare to, to say that I don't have the right to, you know, uh, bully you into mentally bully you into just going along with whatever I say, well, then you're a tyrant. <laughs> it, it, it's an interesting uh, dichotomy and a, from a, from a world where you know they, they they claim they're fighting authority so much, and then they themselves become the authority. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's extremely uh, it's extremely difficult to for me anyway to get, you know get to get rid of that and to to drop that all that conditioning. And uh, sometimes I'm quite horrified by I, I sometimes um, take myself at home. Which for me, home is where I'm really challenged. My kids are really sharp um, at uh, pressing, they're very, very good at pressing my buttons. And I sometimes tape it, and, and I'm quite horrified when I play it back. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's, you know, it, that, thank you for sharing that. And I remember you, you discussing that. And it, it's interesting, though, that if they're very sharp, you know, I mean, I, I wonder where they got that from. <laughs> if they know how to push people's buttons, I wonder where they got that from. I know, I know. I don't know. It's definitely from my wife, I think. Oh, of course. It's, yeah. yeah. Do, do they ever hold up any signs that say, you know, everything is okay with dinner or <laughs> everything is no. okay with what you're making us watch on TV? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I think they'd probably, they'd probably hold up a sign, nothing is okay with daddy. Don't pay him any attention. It just makes him even more deluded. <laughs> well, um, it's you know, but it's it's great though. However, that you know, uh, I think that it would be interesting to see you know how they reflect on this when they grow up. You know, that will be the interesting uh, thing to see is what the children of Danny Shine will be like someday, um, right. and maybe they'll appreciate it more. You know, as they get older, there are a lot of things. For example, my mother tried to teach me that I did not appreciate until she was gone. And I, you know, and now it's too late for me to share that with her. Um, you know, uh, but back to the the topic of 
logical fallacies. I was trying to explain this to somebody recently because uh, recently within the Occupy Detroit movement, there were some fellows there who were very aggressive in the way they talked on the Internet, and it pretty much turned the Facebook group that we were involved in into a mess. It, it became a very difficult place to have any kind of conversation in. And I met the person later in person at a meeting, and he was trying to tell me, well, this movement is not about you know uh, avoiding conflict. And I was like, okay, well, um, I, I think you misunderstand. Uh, when two people communicate, you know, say you and I are trying to converse, the the opponent should be ignorance. Uh, the opponent should be uh, whatever is incorrect. And the two of us then at that point are working together um, in partnership to learn the truth of a matter, at least as we given the information we have at the time. So, in other words... Rather than fighting each other, and this is where the problem usually arises, we are conditioned within the society to believe that uh, we should be afraid of ever being seen to be wrong publicly, yeah. and that that's reinforced, of course, you know, in school. You know, you do that, and kids cool. laugh at you. So, and, and that I realized that after that clicked into my head is that it's just like it's not just about the morality, the immorality of being mean to someone, which is immoral, but it's also about the fact that, you know, I tell people, I'm like, look, you know, if you want to communicate with someone, then you have to consider the effect that your words are going to have on the other person because you don't want them to become emotional in a negative way or they're not going to listen. You know, it's almost a guarantee that at that point, like, you know, at one point I remember a guy, he, he says, well, you're stupid for believing X, Y, and Z. And I said, okay, well, have you considered that since you started that sentence with the words, you're stupid, you've automatically activated this person's defenses. And now they can't admit that they're wrong because if they admit that you're right, then they also are essentially admitting to being stupid. You know, right. you've done something that has prevented communication at that point. And that's, it's, it's a point that it's very hard to get across. And I think that the internet being a new phenomenon in yeah, the human animal, so to speak, is one of the reasons why people don't think of this. You know, they, they see a written word and they see somebody suggesting that, you know, hey, you know, don't talk to him like that as being, you know, an, an advent of censorship. When I've, when I've generally been able to, in the past, through moderating different forums in different ways and doing kind of social experiments, I've been able to say, you know, hey, uh, why don't we all try to not use any logical fallacies for the next 24 hours and see what happens. Mm-hmm. And the communication hits such a high level because nobody's worried that they're going to be insulted, so therefore they're free to express themselves. They're also free to be wrong. They're free to make mistakes because nobody's going to punish them. Right. You know, um, have you ever, I mean, considering all this, I mean, would you have any comments on that with, you know, like any of your own experiences with communication? Yeah, I mean, it's it's um, it's challenging for me uh, to... To enter a conversation in the way you described it, I think you described it really beautifully, and I think it's be, be really useful to remember um, the next time or the next few times I have a conversation with someone is perhaps to put that put that on the table before we start. You know, saying, well, why don't we let let's have a conversation whereby we are trying to uh, find the truth or find our truth in the matter, um, and let's work together. To do that, rather than saying, you know, because it's it, it's such a, a habit to 
take a position and then defend that position. Um, so I, I think it would be it's quite useful to actually articulate that at the beginning of a conversation. Um, there's, there's there's various other fun games to play, and you can play these games with kids. And I, I must uh, do that actually with my own kids. And that is to play games, for example, play the E Prime game. That's that's really hard. Have you ever tried to have a conversation? Do you know about E Prime? No, please explain. Uh, okay, so E Prime uh, is something that um, Robert Anton Wilson talks about. Um, I don't think he invented it, but it's it's basically takes the word is and it's all its conjugations. I think is the right word um, or derivatives um, out of the language. So, for example, um, you know, we could try and do that now, uh, just for five minutes, is to agree not to use the word is or its derivatives. Um, the benefit of it being that um, if if I make some, if I make a comment, you know, uh, for example, uh, take take a cute example, everything is okay. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I, I I made a video about this actually, which is that. I, I had a, gu- a guy who lived on the street, and he used to come past me with my sign, everything is okay. And you, know, you, you, a lot of people wouldn't pay any, any attention because he lives on the street and he's scruffy. But he was extremely smart. And he used to come, and every time he saw me, he said, no, everything is not okay. Everything is everything, and okay is okay. But everything is not okay. And uh, so when you use the word is, it can be a setup. Right. Uh, so if I say, for example, uh, w- when they first started this Occupy movement in London, they had a massive sign saying, um, saying capitalism is crisis. Well, the problem with that sign is that it sets you up. It sets your mind up on a certain track. So your mind is then concentrating. Is it true? Is capitalism crisis or do I not believe it's crisis? Yeah. Well, if you're perhaps if we were really truthful about it, we'd say, well, capitalism is capitalism and crisis is crisis. And the word is can be really problematic because it, it, it reinforces the fallacy that the way I see the world is the way it is. So, so it can be an interesting, another interesting game to play uh, is the game of letting go of the word is. So would you like to try that for five minutes? <laughs> we can certainly try. Okay. So then the question, I mean, I guess then the question will be, what topic? Yeah, that's right. We could choose a topic. Um, uh, we could choose uh, the economy, um, the police. Well, well, what, what topics do you like to talk about? Uh, let's go with the economy. Okay. So what are your thoughts about the economy? I feel we should consider taking the economy in a self-sustaining direction. Right. And, and you see, that's powerful because because you're you're just sharing your feelings and your thoughts, and you're not you're not saying the economy is this or yeah. So that, that that's powerful. That's actually now I I truly understand what you mean because basically uh, you take off the table the notion that I automatically know the truth. You know, I'm yeah. ex- 
I'm actually exchanging with you rather than speaking at you. That's right. Yeah. So then what's your reply? <laughs> well, <laughs> um, my reply is... Yeah. You can play this with kids, by the way. It's really good fun with them. They're, they're very good at it. Um, I hear that you feel that. Um, and that thought uh, resonates with me. Can you share with me how it resonates? Um, <laughs> um, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I'll tell you why I can't, actually. Seriously. Uh, no, because I would like you to repeat it first. Very well. I feel we should take the economy in a self-sustaining direction. Okay. And my response to that would be, um, please, can you share more about what that means to you? I consider a resource-based economy as the best possible solution I have seen. Right. And how would that work? We would have to consider the resources that are left on the planet and determine the most intelligent way to use them for the sake of producing a world that creates the highest standard of living for all people. Okay. And... Have there been the, the thing is that what come what comes to mind, for example, when you say that, um, Ste Stefan Molyneux comes to mind, mm -hmm. and what uh, and I like what he does because he has thought through a lot of the questions that will come up um, in response to his assertion um, that government is, oh, there you go. Oh, well, he says, <laughs> he says government is um, immoral, inherently immoral. That's what he says. I'm not saying that. So to come back to what you're saying, ha have there been, have people looked into all the questions that would arise, um, practical questions that would arise um, in terms of how this uh, resource-based economy would actually be implemented and work. I have been privy to conversations and exchanges of questions also with Stefan Molyneux, and we have agreed to disagree, although we also recognize that any society that has a state will likely have difficulty. And in fact, uh, those of you listening who may wish to hear those conversations may find them in the archives. 
<laughs> here on my website. Um, that being said, however, uh, the resource-based economy model seeks to create a stateless society. Um, it is most... Ah, I screwed up. It seems... <laughs> yeah, it's great. You see, it's a great... Isn't it a great uh, discipline? Mm-hmm. Right. You, it is interesting. And I think what I like the most about this exercise, and I think we've hit the five minutes now, but is that it really is a a chance to kind of really think about how much we speak in definites when we're speaking to other people. You know, right. we we tend to kind of want to take possession or control over the facts of a given conversation. And I think that's one of the reasons why people feel very oppressed, you know, in a debate. They they might feel that uh, – that because once you make that statement, you're kind of committed to it, and it makes there you know a lot more at stake, you know. And in fact, it's interesting that you know because I've been in conversations where I've tried to avoid speaking in those kind of absolutes because I'm trying to get the other person to think about what I'm trying to say, rather than just accepting it or whatever. And what people tend to do is like they kind of rehearse their their rote learning, so to speak, and then they just kind of throw it at each other. And yeah. hopefully something good comes out of that. Well, it has limited it has limited benefits, doesn't it? Um, I, I, here's another, by the way, here's another game you can play, um, which is uh, to speak only uh, about personal experience um, mm -hmm. and, and therefore to use, um, I mean, this has its problems as well, but to use I only instead of like you and we. So I noticed that you've been doing that quite a bit. You've been speaking about we and you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's another thing that takes, the, you know, that that takes the mind. So if if if, if I was to say, um, I often do X, Y, and Z, or I was to say, well, you often, you, you know, you often, as in you, as in everyone, when you say you, you're then projecting your idea onto me. It may, it may not be true. And, and in my subconscious mind, I might, I'll then go off and find it difficult to listen to you because you're projecting your stuff onto me. But, but instead, if you just say I instead of you or we, then you're sharing from your own personal experience, which is far more truthful. That's another game to play. You could play that. That's an easier game than letting go of the is. I see exactly where you're coming from on that. You know, like you were saying before, the problem is that we tend to be, you know, to use definites. It's right. more powerful if you just say I. Yeah, and because it's now when you when you say that, is it do you feel that it's like a declaratory thing? Like if I put the I next to it now, I guess now what you're saying basically is that this means that it's specifically coming from me. You know, is that what that's you're, you're about? You're sharing your experience. You don't know about anybody else's experience, right? You know, what 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 I tend to do. Here's a great example of this. What I tend to do is I uh, I like to think that my experience is is very common, and it's you know sometimes I might say every might think or say everybody's doing what I do, unless I've unless I've met everybody. 
then I don't know. There could be some people that don't do what I do. Um, you know, some people might not generalize or some people might not be definite. I don't know. So if I just say, well, I find it hard, um, that's more powerful and it's more true because I'm just speaking about myself. I'm not projecting it onto other people or to a whole group of people or to onto the majority. That's, you know, that's really profound stuff. Um, and I think that we're kind of getting to the root of how people really, I mean, the, the, the communication beneath the communication, I guess would be the word. Uh, the, the notion that there are so many kinds of things that we attach to what it is that we're talking about. Now try, now, stop this. So now try that again in the first person. I feel <laughs> yeah. that... There are so many things that I attach. Right. What you are discussing with me, yeah. being a version of I, uh, about this topic is very interesting. Uh I look at it and compare it with my own experiences of studying communication and trying to get to the bottom of it. Uh, and it takes me in new directions to consider uh, what I had already kind of intuitively been feeling, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yes. I mean, it, there, there is so much, like you were saying, there is so much going on Um in in my communications that I notice in my communications behind the scenes um you know there's stuff from my childhood there's stuff uh from just the the way the way language the way we've learnt language is so problematic um that there's for example there's another thing when you've got kids I don't know if you've noticed this but we've got three kids and I've noticed it really, really strongly. Um, very interesting, actually. But I'll give you a really interesting example of this, whereby the, my my child will hear something completely different than I I meant. He will because he will interpret the words differently. But I didn't realize that. I will assume that he he think he's listening, and he's when he says it or hears it, he hears the same thing. I'll give you a classic example. Um, when my wife does this, I hope she'll forgive me for for grassing her up on this. Um, sure. But I do I, I do worse. Um, she, over the years, she's got into a habit when she gets frustrated and the kids aren't doing what they're told to do. Right? <laughs> she says, "You're not." She says, "Listen to me. Listen to me." Right? Mm -hmm. So I notice that our five-year-old, when he's not getting his way, right? would say, you know, and, and I would say, listen to me. And I would, and I, I, up until a few months ago, I would say, I have listened to you. You said you wanted your 15th lollipop. You can't have it, right? <laughs> to which he'd say, listen to me, listen to me. And I'd say, but I have listened to you. You can't have your 15th. I've heard what you have to say. And what he means by listen to me, which he learned from my wife, is do what I tell you to do. That's very good, actually. You've come, you've come across something very important there, Danny, because uh, in many cases you find this fallacy being labeled. You know, it's that if you were listening to me, then you would agree with me. You right. know, so obviously it just means that you don't. You you either cannot comprehend what I'm saying, or that you're not listening. It could not be that 
you know, that I've reviewed everything that you have and that I just don't agree with you, it must mean that I just don't get it, you know, or that I'm not trying to get it or rather I'm refusing to get it. And it is kind of it is it is too bad because, I mean, in many cases, people really aren't listening. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, you know, that we, we I mean, I, I it took me till I was 30 years old <coughs> to, to even have my first experience of, you know, being listened to and listening to other people. I had to go to one of these American, uh, you know, personal development courses to learn what really I should have learned when I was very young. I should have learned at home. I should have learned at school just simply to deeply listen to someone. Mm -hmm. So it, there's not a lot of listening going on. But but the, but the, the funny thing about this example for me is it's a classic example uh, of people, you know, especially young people uh, having different meanings to the same words. Um. And and us and us not realizing or me not realizing. There, you see, I go again. I I say us, which sort of takes the, you know, it's sort of it's a very British thing to do. You know, the Queen speaks about the royal we. So, uh, so cut the us. So you know, it's I don't I haven't often don't notice and and have conversations with people, and I'm saying certain words and they hear differently. I'll give you another really good example of a very controversial subject which I don't often speak about, um, which is, and I got asked on the, I did a radio interview yesterday and I got asked a question, what do, what's my opinion of Zionism? And, and uh, so that's, a, that's another one that I, I haven't completely figured out. I was, I've been to uh, Israel uh, many, many times. And um, my, my thoughts about, for example, about that is that, that, it, that Zionism, what I said to, yesterday and I say again today, is Zionism is a word. Um, and it's a word that is, you know, is, uh, is, it's spelled Z-I-O-N-I-S-M. And when I say spelled, it's from, as in magic. It's a word and it's a symbol that has a magical effect on people. And it, it, it's really, you know, just the word itself can bring up anger, hatred, um, you know, frustration, judgment. And, it, and in other people, it can bring up joy, happiness, fear, you know, feelings of safety, righteousness. Like the word Nazi. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but the, you see, there you go. Now you've said like the word Nazi. And for mm -hmm. some people, just saying like the word Nazi, once we're speaking about Zionism, some people would say, yeah, that's right. They're the same, right? <laughs> and then other people would say, how could you say, you know, Zionism is like Nazism? And actually, if you ask the people who think Zionism is the same as Nazism, what Zionism actually means to them, it's very likely that they'll have a very different understanding than the people who I know, for example, that would call themselves Zionists. They would probably, those people who call themselves Zionists would have a different understanding of the word and it's all very, very, can all be very, very confusing. And I think perhaps I don't know a lot about language I, uh, in terms of, you know, studying linguistics. But I have a little hunch that uh, it could be that English was created perhaps on purpose uh, by its creators purposely to create this ambiguity 
that makes it quite difficult for us to to have a com- to have a meaningful conversation. That's actually very true, and Jacques Fresco talked about that all the time. Ironically, it's uh, something that somebody had mentioned in the chat room was that uh, we need to be able to more intentionally communicate with one another. I mean, Jacques seems to think we need to create a language that has no ambiguities at all. Um, and I feel that, you know, and then like, I mean, when you look at the way different languages are structured, uh, some of them just pronouncing the exact identical word with a different tone of voice changes its meaning entirely. Right. Um, like to something that is not in any way related, even, you know, um, Japanese in particular, uh, Hawaiian, these are both languages that do that. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting, actually, I, I wanted to ask you, because we were discussing this and kind of uh, fired something in my head. Have you ever attended a general assembly in an Occupy movement? I have. I, to be honest with you, I'm uh, <laughs> I, I'm not that into I don't know. I, I've never felt that attracted to, to hang around them too long mm-hmm. uh, because I don't have a lot of patience for sort of meetings like that. They seem to go on for a long time. I'm not sure what they where they get, but I. But having said that, it's not fair for me to really give my opinion on it. Um, number one, because I don't rate my opinion anyway. Uh, I don't rate opinions in general. But number two, if I, I haven't really sat through one long enough to know. Oh, well, no. The reason I'm bringing this up, though, is relevant to just the conversation we're having. And that is that um, one of the things I noticed about the, because I have another fellow I bring on frequently who's an expert on consensus decision-making processes. And he said that one of the things that he concerns him about it within the Occupy movement is that in many cases, these people don't have the sincere level of caring for what everyone else there is saying. Like everyone else being heard is not really that important to them. And in true consensus, at least as he teaches it, and he's been doing it for a really long time, everybody in the group has to have a sincere, deep caring inside them for making sure that everyone is heard and everybody's feelings are considered. And unfortunately, like, you know, what at least what I've heard is that they they borrowed a lot of their consensus decision-making from the Quakers. I don't know if you're familiar with the Society of Friends, the Quakers. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, very, very, very nice people who believe Lovely. that, you know, who believe that anything aggressive or harmful that they might do to someone else actually would hurt them. It hurts their soul. So right. you have this group of people who basically spend their entire lives protecting everyone around them from themselves. And right. so, of course, they do well in consensus because they never would even consider, you know, saying something mean to someone, perhaps to get them to be quiet so that they could get a proposal through, you know, right. they would. They would never consider doing anything along the lines of, you know, trying to belittle someone or mock them, you know, uh, or harm them, you know, or their reputations for that matter to try to affect the process. And that's something that, I mean, most of these groups are, are pretty good at that. Don't get me wrong. I mean, they have, a hand, they have special hand signals for this person is not showing anyone respect and then people can kind of silently protest that way. But at the same token, you know, I've seen that, you know, there are people that walk into the situation that uh, recognize that they're surrounded by people and it's a leaderless situation. So nobody can make them stop. So they just kind of force themselves on everyone and, you know, and victimize them. And if you don't uh, call them out on it, uh, then they can usually end up kind of running the place, even though it's not supposed to have a leader. 
we tend to forget that as much as we dislike authority figures like police and, and soldiers, uh, they were at least that, that whole role within society was created in theory to protect us from people who might try to use force to force us to do something. Right. And, and it doesn't mean that, you know, we should continue having that, that particular reaction, but you know, if we can't just expect to not replace it with something, even if it's just a strong, socially conscious and sensitive society. You know, right. So, so um, and that's the reason I brought that up was just that it's, uh, I think that many of the people that are communicating in these general assemblies are not really communicating. They they kind of wait to talk. And uh, recently, I had to mediate a dispute between a large group of people within the local Occupy movement. And there were people there that had become so accustomed to the general assembly system that they were very uncomfortable that I wasn't using it. Uh, right. And I was trying to point out to them, I said, well, the problem is, is that you guys have had like four or five general assemblies and this problem has not been solved. There are people who very much are angry and displeased with other people and you're not having, you're not communicating, you know, well, of course we communicate, you know, we get on stack and, you know, we get in line. And I said, yes. And frequently what'll happen is one person will say something accusatory about another person. And that person will have to wait in line behind eight or nine people before he gets to say anything about the thing that person said, like, you know, at this point, five from five to ten minutes ago, which is right. an, which is an eternity in a conversation. And I said, and that's why, you know, I've always, I told them, ironically, uh, you know, if you wanted to sit down the Israelis and the Palestinians, I wouldn't use a general assembly and <laughs> a stack consensus system. Well, you know, and what I did was it, the funny thing is, is that in the first five minutes of this mediation, I got more done than several general assemblies and a lot of complaining on Facebook was not right. able to do over a course of a month, just because I allowed someone to say, "So, is there anyone who can, is concerned about this issue?" Yes, you're concerned. Okay, who are you concerned with? Okay, you're concerned with what these people did. Very well. Uh, you know, state your concern. Excellent. All right, now, you people, please. Let, let's let's reach a, a you know a, let's have a conversation about this. Let's reach an understanding. Can you explain why you did the thing that these people don't like? And then you know and then they actually were exchanging with each other, and right. it was amazing to me because uh, some people really felt put off that I was facilitating that. They were very displeased that I was not you know making everybody wait in line and all that. I was like, right. okay, we're, we're trying to fix a, a problem between groups of people here and. These people waiting in line, you know, does not resolve it because one of the things I did is I kind of streamlined the conversation along the lines of, okay, well, do you feel better about the thing that bothers you now? You know, just to be sure. And and maybe if the other person didn't offer a solution, okay, so you know, you've agreed that this person's grievances is, is probably very legitimate. What are you prepared to do to be sure that that doesn't happen again? You know, and then the person would come up with a solution, and then everybody would feel better. You know. <laughs> um, and I think that that's actually an example. The funny thing is, is they developed that system because they're so scared of authoritarianism that it ends up the system itself kind of becomes kind of oppressive. Because I would sit there, because for a while the, the, the complaints that people were making that I didn't run into the General Assembly started to um, cause me to allow me to demonstrate my problems. So I went ahead and switched to a General Assembly system of a stack for a while. And then what ended up happening was... One person got so frustrated because he had listened to no less than six people speak very badly about him that he just got up and left. You know, I was like, well, you know, you guys said you have the consensus model to make sure everyone is included. Well, that person doesn't want to be included anymore. I I, I would say that was probably a failure, you know, 
it, don't get me wrong. I, I like general assemblies for you know better than you know many other systems, but I don't think that certain things, particularly communication between two factions or people who are upset with one another, is best done in that kind of model. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I'm I'm don't see myself as an expert in these things. So. But you got my point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got your point. Yeah, right. Yeah. And that was that was good enough about that. But you know, um, so Danny, uh, now I guess uh, if you know the question I'm going to ask you, um, you know, before we part this evening, and I, I want to thank you again for being on. Um, my pleasure. Is if you could have the people who are listening now who are considering going to your YouTube channel. Uh, watch one video and, and none other. Like, could you think of one in particular that you would say, I'd really like them to try this one? I think the Canary Wharf one is is a classic. You want to describe it? Um, do I want to describe it? Not really. Describing my videos, I find it's very... Uh, it's just... Uh, watching, you have to just watch them, but uh, so let them be curious. If they're not curious enough to watch them, then forget it. But um, it, it's called it's called the Liberation of Canary Wharf, um, and it, it's uh, I, it's one of my favourites. You just have to watch it to get it. You know, it's, I, I don't like describing them. No, that makes perfect sense. And where can they check out your work? I'm sorry, your pleasure. <laughs> my pleasure. <laughs> Great. Um, at it's on YouTube. The channel is called Spiritual Entertainer, um, and there's a couple of hundred videos on there. Um, just check that. Hold on one second. Yeah, it's called The Liberation of Everything Is Okay, The Liberation of Canary Wharf. Excellent. Well, thanks again, Danny. You know, and and stay in touch. Uh, I actually learned a great deal from this conversation, and I I hope that you learned some things too. Uh, I you certainly know, did. That little those exercises you did were great. Um, I haven't felt so on point until uh, since uh, I had Doctor Gabor Mate on here, and he was analyzing my childhood and making me think about <laughs> it. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, I was going to bring him on to talk, and then all of a sudden I'm lying on a couch, and you know, and he's addressing right. my issues in but, front of everyone. <laughs> right. It was fine though. I mean, he he helped me learn a lot about you know where a lot of things formulate, and people can check those out in the archives too. But um, thanks again, Danny, and um, you Thank know, if you. there's and if anything ever comes up that you ever want to report on, you know, don't hesitate to get in touch with me. And, you know, maybe you and I should should have some chats off the air at some point, just as a couple of guys. Yeah, why not? Why not? All right. Well, take care, okay. Danny. Take care. Bye. All right. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in tonight. I'll leave you some words with Jock Fre- from Josh Fre- yeah, Fresco and Roxanne Meadows. This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is Jock Fresco. And you're listening to V Radio.